Welcome back to 10 and 20, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Brad. And my name's Sarah. Thank you so much for listening again today. And for all of you folks listening on your iPhone, please review us on your Apple Podcast app and let us know how we're doing. This week, we are interviewing Dr. James Adkinson, who is a physician and an expert on Civil War medicine. We talked to him about Civil War medicine, but we also discussed what it would have been like in a field hospital uh, similar to the one at Carnton. I think we'll just start with you talking about uh, a little bit about your background. Like, where do you come from and what's your specialty? And what got you into Civil War history? Well... My interest in Civil War history started actually uh, in Franklin. Uh, I grew up in North Alabama. Uh, My father's family was from Arkansas, and his grandfather and four brothers uh, uh, fought for the Confederacy during the Civil War. Come to find out, uh, one of my great-grandfather's brothers was in the 5th Arkansas Infantry, and was actually killed uh, at the at the cotton gin. He was in Claiborne's division, so that got me interested in Civil War history. How old were you when you learned that? Um, I was probably in my early thirties, okay. late twenty or early thirties. Yeah, so it, it took a while. So then one thing led to another, and then as far as Civil War medicine is concerned, uh, being a physician, I'm a pathologist. Uh, I practice at Vanderbilt in the VA hospital. Uh, being a physician. I think it was just a natural uh, sort of a meeting of, of ideas and minds that uh, that piqued my interest in learning more about Civil War medicine. And what was it? I mean, was there anything in those early days that you found particularly interesting, other than just knowing that you had an ancestor in it? Uh, what like really hooked you into it? I think what hooked me was was genealogy. Uh, it was fun um, pulling the records. Actually, my father had done a lot of that. The, the old muster rolls and, and family history and whatnot, and just to see uh, what what happened to all these people and where they fought and and whatnot. And, and in fact, my great-grandfather, all four of his brothers, died during the Civil War. But fortunately for me, he, he, was the, uh, he survived. Um, so again, I think it's just learning more about family history. And, um, and again, it's hard not to be, uh, be interested. So we, I live in Brentwood, uh, so pretty close to Franklin. Um, and then I guess the other thing that sort of dovetailed is that I have a daughter who uh, became interested in history. And um, so the two of us have uh, done things together, uh, taken trips, uh, taken courses and whatnot. So the main thing that we're wanting to talk about is is Civil War medicine um, in general, but then like particularly what an operating room and a battlefield like like Carnton would have been. When it comes to Civil War medicine, what are what are the biggest differences between what they were doing then and what you do today? I think uh, the two major there were two major differences. Um, one is that uh, really the the uh, state of medicine had not changed for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, in the 1800s, uh, there was a, still a belief that that when people got sick, it was because uh, things got out of balance. There were these humors, and they had to all stay in perfect balance. And uh, when somebody got pneumonia or they got an appendicitis or uh, or they got a migraine headache, 
then the remedy was to restore the balance of, of those humors. And in fact, in the 1800s, the most common thing that doctors did was, uh, was bleeding. Uh, one way to get the body back in homeostasis was to, to remove blood, depending on the disorder. I mean, there were like books which would tell you whether to bleed somebody or, or make them vomit or, or, or whatnot. So bleeding was a big part of medical practice. In fact, uh, one form of bleeding was called cupping, where a glass cup is placed over some part of the body and a vacuum is created by uh, burning, and, and that's supposed to remove those ill humors. Interestingly, there are people today who still cup. Uh, it's done in China, and if you remember in the last Olympics, Michael Phelps, before uh, some of his uh, events uh, was uh, had cupping done. So that one hasn't quite died out yet, but I don't think it's because of the ill humor theory. Well, in your, in your professional opinion, is there any merit to that practice or any of those other practices? I think it's a placebo effect, uh, at least in my opinion. Uh, if it, if somebody thinks it's doing good, then, then, you know, the body has control or the mind has control over the body. So often that's, that's all it takes to, uh, to make a difference. Um, and then the other thing I think is um, the Civil War was unique in that it was really the first modern war in the sense that the people had learned how to kill better. In other words, with the new bullets, the rifled muskets, uh, those were accurate at much longer distances, which meant, which meant that you could uh, sh- shoot at a lot more people. And uh, that really increased the number of casualties and, and, and injuries. Again, most doctors, uh, when the Civil War started, had not done any surgery at all. In one of the most busiest teaching hospitals in the country, in Philadelphia, uh, they would do maybe 200 operations a year. Uh, And so, really, the Civil War threw doctors into a whole new uh, paradigm in in practicing medicine and and whatnot. And then I guess the last thing I'll say is is that uh, there was no concept of, uh, of, of bacteria spreading diseases we had a we doctors had a sense that diseases could be spread from person to person but they didn't figure out how that really occurred and it wasn't until right after the civil war that uh that uh, pasteur published his work about uh, germ theory and bacteria uh, so that that was a uh, that made, that was a big difference between now and then then kind of conversely of that, what practices do we still use now that were created during the Civil War? Uh, there, there were a number of things. So again, both the North and South were not used to dealing with the number of casualties from these battles, and they had to kind of go on the fly. Uh, one of the first things they did is they had to figure out, well, how do we get injured soldiers off the field so we can take care of them? And so out of that grew the ambulance system, uh, that's, and uh, that's still used today. Uh, the concept of triage, where, where you have somebody who's injured and you determine how serious the injury is, and that determination informs whether that patient goes straight to surgery or can wait a while or maybe can convalesce some other way. So soldiers were triaged. The most serious ones were, of course, uh, operated on. And um, the concept of field hospitals, having hospitals close to the front lines uh, grew out of the Civil War. That's still used today. In fact, I'll tell you just a sort of a short side story. My father was in the Army during World War II and landed on Omaha Beach during D-Day. 
And he, uh, he, they were pinned down on the beach for a while. And then finally, when they got up off the beach, uh, there was this large hill that they had to, had to go up. And at the top of the hill was a tent, which was a field hospital. And just similar to what you might see during the Civil War, although field hospitals were in houses uh, like Carton and, and other places. And he said that outside the field hospital were arms and legs that had been amputated. And again, that scene played out hundreds and hundreds of times during the Civil War. So that, uh, in, in fact, the technique of doing amputations really hasn't changed that much since the Civil War. Uh, the two things that, or the one thing that's done differently is now we do know that we have to use antiseptic techniques, uh, that in instruments have to be sterilized and whatnot. That was not during, during the Civil War. But the basic, if you look in any uh, medical books uh, during the 1800s, that describe operations, they're, they're really, the technique is, is almost identical to what, what's done now. So that's similar. So I think those, those are the major things that grew out of the Civil War that we still practice today. Uh, the way hospitals are organized. So um, in the 1800s, most people, hospitals weren't that big a deal. Uh, if people were sick, uh, the doctors would come to them in their homes, uh, especially in rural areas. But obviously, during the Civil War, with a lot of injuries and casualties, uh, hospitals became a bigger deal. And the concept of putting similar diseases in similar wards uh, grew out of the Civil War, so that uh, you might have a, a ward or, or a floor with, with people who had limbs amputated. You might have another one with people who are recovering from diarrhea or pneumonia. And so that con so the concept of pavilion hospitals grew out of the Civil War, and then finally there were just some a few there were some techniques. Um, oral surgery uh, was born during the Civil War. Obviously, there were injuries to the face, and uh, surgeons attempted to to fix those. In fact, uh, that uh, there was a hospital in Atlanta who, who pioneered a lot of the techniques of uh, of oral surgery. And so uh, a few things like that uh, here and there uh, grew out of the Civil War, which we still still do today. Let's say you were a let's say you were just a normal physician. What was your training back then? And what were you what was like the worst of what you were used to seeing? Sure. Uh, so the training uh, all physicians did go to medical school. They were a little bit different than they are today. Um, there would be classes uh, for one year. And then you would actually repeat that year the, during the second year. So I guess if it didn't sink in, you'd have a second chance. Um, but there's one year of schooling? Well, yeah, one year of formal classes. Okay. Well, well, actually two years, but, but, but they, were the, they just thing. taught the same yeah. subjects. And then the third and fourth year were apprenticeships so that uh, medical students would uh, work with doctors in the community and, and basically uh, learn on the fly or on the go. Now, as far as... Surgery goes, and surgery was a big deal during uh, the Civil War. Um, the only surgeries that most doctors did during their life, lifetime would be uh, setting bones from horse injuries or uh, in, uh, in uh, cities that had factories. If there was some industrial accident, they would, uh, they would do that. There were a few gunshots, uh, weren't very many at all. Uh, and so really there wasn't a large um, experience with, with formal surgery. Uh, midwives helped deliver babies, uh, so that wasn't uh, wasn't a big deal. And so basically, uh, doctors treated pneumonias and headaches and infectious diseases. 
they would do a little bit of surgery. And then, of course, the Civil War broke out, um, and they were just kind of thrown into the fray. There were military surgeons. There weren't very many at the beginning of the war. I think just over 100 uh, in the North, and I don't know how many in the South. But over the course of time, in a very short period of time, uh, both sides uh, developed their military departments and, and set criteria for for military surgeons. And they actually had ways of weeding out surgeons who weren't weren't competent. So things things uh, moved along pretty quickly. But again, uh, in the 1800s, doctors would would you know they would bleed people. Um, they would treat just various infectious diseases and whatnot. So let's say you are just a normal local physician back then. The war begins. Do these guys end up enlisting and just saying, hey, just so you know, I'm a doctor? Or do, do the different sides seek them out and then assign them to different regiments? How does that work? I think it was a little bit of both. Um, there were, for example, some of the military surgeons who were already in the military in the north uh, moved to the south. Uh, so that, they got started that way. But um, but basically doctors volunteered and, and they enlisted. And um, if they had experience doing surgery, that was great. If not, then they they were there were a couple there were different levels of doctors like the, the top level surgeon and then assistants and whatnot so that they would be assigned in one of those in one of those tiers, but of course over a very short period of time, if they had not had a lot of experience doing surgery, well they gained it again on the fly just like the apprenticeship in, in medical school. So uh, it didn't take them long to, to learn the techniques and, and become uh, good at that. Was it common at all for men to be, uh, for people who were not surgeons or who were not trained medical professionals to end up becoming them during the war? N- not to my knowledge. No, they might become stewards. Stewards were like physicians' assistants today. Uh, they would help doctors. Um and that sort of thing. But um, really, to be a doctor, and especially uh, as the war went on, uh, both sides, uh, the military physicians had to meet certain requirements and certain expectations so that you couldn't just kind of jump in feet first and do it that way. There would be teams of three. There would be a a chief surgeon. uh, There would be an assistant. And then there would be a steward. So there's teams of three. They would set up field hospitals. Uh, what do they look for in a field hospital as the ideal location, structure? Uh, almost anything they could find. <laughs> um, but a couple of requirements. Of course, it had to be close enough to the front line, but not too close uh, that they would be in danger. So again, this is where the ambulance systems uh, came into came into play. Uh, really, any, any sort of a structure that had good ventilation, that, that had good lighting. Um, so uh, houses, churches, uh, there were some, uh, sometimes tents would be set up. Uh, sometimes they would be done in the open. Um, and Antietam, for example, uh, a lot of the field hospitals were just out in, in open fields because uh, they really didn't have time to erect tents and there weren't many houses in, in those particular areas. So that's what they would look for. In terms of an actual operating room, uh, they would typically uh, want to work uh, near a window. A couple reasons for that. One is to get the light. Uh, and the second, which we'll maybe talk about later, uh, one misconception about the Civil War is that 
there was no anesthesia, that soldiers were wide awake during surgeries and amputations. Uh, not true. Uh, about 90% of operations were done uh, using anesthesia. But the problem is the anesthesia that was used is in a vapor and you need good ventilation. Otherwise, the doctors are going to like fall asleep, which would not be a good thing in the middle of an operation. No. It kind so, of defeats the purpose of right, having a doctor. Right, right, right. So they would set up, uh, they might take a board or, or they might take a door and set it up on chairs as an operating table. And it would usually be in the corner or the side of a room uh, with windows for the lighting and, and for the ventilation. Uh, and again, if they were intense, then, then that was not, not a problem. Our regular listeners will know that we record these episodes in the attic of Carnton, which was a field hospital during the battle. So at 4 p.m., uh, the Confederate assault begins. Loring's division marches towards this house, takes it over, artillery fire landing all around. That, that division continues to march towards the line. Let's say there's just a regular soldier who gets wounded in the midst of all this. Uh, what happens to him? How does he, how does he get back here? He would be brought back through the ambulance system, uh, and that ambulance system may not necessarily be an ambulance like, you know, we hear going down the street uh, every other day, but it would be uh, soldiers who would have stretchers. Uh, often uh, the soldiers who did that were ones who might have been wounded themselves. They weren't quite 100%. Uh, they weren't in fighting readiness, or they might be recovering from a infectious disease or something, but they would get the soldier off the, off the battlefield directly. They would be brought to the nearest field hospital, and that would, in this case, that would be Carton. So Carton was designated, uh, along with many other buildings in Franklin, as a, as a field hospital. And they would be triaged. So in other words, uh, somebody would look at them, either the chief surgeon or his assistant, and say, well, how serious is this injury? Is this just, you know, a, a, something, that, a flesh wound, for example, that we can dress really easily and uh, take care of? Or has your arm gotten shattered by a mini ball and we need to do an amputation? So they would determine the more serious, the less serious injuries. Uh, if you were less seriously injured, um, you, you might get your wound dressed. You might have to wait around for a while. Uh, and then um, the more serious ones were, were uh, taken for, for operations. I think, if I'm not mistaken, there were two rooms upstairs that were used. At least. Yeah, yeah at least two rooms. So the scene at Carton would be downstairs. There would be a lot of soldiers waiting their turn, so to speak, um, waiting to be seen by a doctor to see how serious their injury is. Uh, and then those soldiers would probably would also be in the rooms that they're doing the operations in. So in these rooms, again, uh, there might be a door that's been taken off, put next to a window. Uh, there would be a team of three doctors, and there were probably several of those teams. And um, they would, you know, they would do their, do their thing. So soldiers are waiting to get operated on. Once they've been operated on, uh, they're uh, led somewhere else in the house to recuperate. So this, this place, I'm sure, is, is quite chaotic with, with just hundreds of, of men either having been operated on or waiting to get operated on. Do you think if you're in, in that operating space, you're saying chaotic, do you think it would feel totally frantic or would these guys have done this enough that there would be some order to it? Uh, there would be order. Um, it, it would be frantic in the sense that, uh, that there would be soldiers obviously in pain and, and you're trying to, 
to, to deal with them. But it, but it was um, it was it would almost be like a like a, a a factory in a sense where you know a typical amputation might take ten minutes. You do one amputation, you bring the other soldier up, uh, and you just do them one after the other. And again, the doctors who uh, the, the doctors who were doing these. Uh, we're pretty worn out. Uh, you can imagine doing this, spending all night doing amputations. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, th- there would be it would be it would be orderly. Uh, there was a system, and again, that went back to the triage and how serious the injuries were, uh, and, and whatnot. And amputations were the most common surgery performed in these triage like field hospitals, right? Yes. Yeah, so. Um, in fact, uh, doctors got kind of a bad rap for doing amputations. Uh, people thought that they were just amputation happy. <laughs> um, and it, But in fact, actually, uh, there were some uh, physicians and medical groups from Europe who came over and said they weren't doing enough amputations. But nonetheless, those were the most common operations, which kind of made, which made sense because um, if a soldier, if you're charging across the field or walking across the field, uh, if you get hit in the arms or legs, um, that'll require an amputation. Uh, if you get hit in the abdomen or chest, you're probably not going to survive. So, uh, I mean, some of those pa- people, soldiers, did survive. So just from the, from the numbers alone, uh, those were the most common surgeries. Uh, why did they do amputations? Well, recall these. So these uh, bullets that were used were made of soft lead. And when they hit a bone, they shattered the bone. And there was absolutely no way that a, that a doctor could go in and reset that bone. You know, if you have a clean break, if you're if you fall off your bicycle, or you're playing football or something, you you break your leg. It's going to be a clean break. It's not. It's that break is not going to be in in a dozen little pieces. Uh, but that's what the mini balls did. What the bullets did. So really, the only way to deal with those would be to amputate that limb. And again, for that reason, that was the most common uh, operation. Hattie McGavick was nine years old the night of the battle. And she, um, decades later in 1931, said that she could still recall the smells of the battlefield. What do you think those would have been? That may have been from convalescing soldiers. So again, recall that uh, these operations were not done done under antiseptic techniques. Uh, the surgeons got very good at doing amputations. They could do them quickly. But the problem that would develop after that would be infection. And so a hospital, so-called hospital gangrene would occur uh, because they're not using aseptic techniques. And I think once that, once you get an infection, that smells pretty bad. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if the smell she was talking about were the, were, would be sometime or, or a short time after uh, an operation and those wounds got infected and those were hard to deal with. And how common were these infections? Uh, very prevalent. In fact, that's typically what, what killed soldiers after an operation. Uh, I would just estimate at least three quarters of, uh, of, opera, of wounds got infected. Now, the good news is uh, those would resolve in some cases, uh, but in others uh, they wouldn't. So, uh, and it, again, towards the end of the war, there was a sense that things could be done to prevent those infections. Uh, in some places, they were using carbolic acid, which they would uh, vaporize. And it, 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 they didn't understand why, but they just noticed that infections are lower when we, when we vaporize this and, and spray it around the room, uh, as opposed to when we don't. 
but it, it was it was a problem. Are there any other techniques that they used to stop infections that were developed during the Civil War? No. Again, unfortunately, um, the, the concept of, of uh, aseptic techniques, aseptic surgery, uh, which was uh, published by Lister, uh, in, uh, didn't come out until 1867, so just a couple of years too late. What would an amputation be like? Um, just to kind of go through the so, sort of the steps, so uh, so the soldier would be placed on the operating table uh, on the door or whatever they're using for a for a table. The first thing that the surgeon would do would be probe the wound, uh, usually with his finger, to see uh, how bad the damage was. He just sticks his finger. Just in the sticks wound. his finger in the wound. Yes. Um, Is if, that something you would do today? I would wear gloves. If I, I was did like, you didn't today. say no that fast. <laughs> <Right>. Sure, why not? <laughs> um, you, you, yeah, you, you you would explore the wound. Um, you, you do it while the patient's asleep and <laughs> and and wearing gloves. But, okay. but that would still, you know, you still. Well, and again today, uh, you probably would have an X-ray or some sort of an imaging study uh, before actually going into the operating room. Um, but he explores the room with his finger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The wound with his yeah, finger. Yeah, So yeah, they would and they would see if there's any bone damage. Uh, if there is, if it's substantial, then then you do an amputation. Uh, if not, sometimes uh, the bone might not be broken. So you explore the wound. Uh, you try to find the the bullet or the mini ball. Uh, you take that out. Uh, but assuming that that there is a lot of damage, so they've determined that that we're going to do an amputation. So several things would be going on simultaneously. Uh, first of all, they'd want the soldier to be unconscious, so they'd put him to sleep. Uh, they would use either ether or chloroform. Uh, and again, ether uh, was discovered, I think, in the 1500s, but it really wasn't used for anesthesia until the early 1800s. Um, there was a surgeon in, in Georgia, Crawford Long, who removed a tumor from somebody's neck uh, under anesthesia, and that was the first operation where they where it was used. Uh, chloroform was discovered uh, in the early 1800s, and, and both of these put people to sleep. How did they, how did they do that? Well, they would drip th- these on a, on a cloth or, or a rag or something over their nose and mouth, and the fumes would eventually, uh, the soldier would, would lose consciousness. So they're putting the soldier to sleep, um, when you do an amputation, you're going to cut through large arteries and veins, and you don't want your patient to bleed out. So uh, a tourniquet would be applied above the where the damage is, above where the amputation is. And then once the soldier was asleep, uh, you do the amputation. So that would entail uh, using large knives called catlins, uh, which would have double edge. Both sides had had were sharp, or you could use just a regular large knife to cut through the skin, through muscle. Uh, you cut down to bone. And remember, you're cutting uh, proximal or above where the damaged bone is. Uh, so you use a bone saw, you cut through the bone. When you cut through the muscle, there are arteries, little arteries. Arteries are elastic. They're like rubber bands. And they would retract back in to the stump. So uh, there were uh, instruments uh, where they, which had little hooks on them that they would pull the arteries out and tie those off. 
so that they don't keep bleeding. You said time off, just time around themselves? Uh, but they use suture. They, use suture. Uh, they would use, uh, there was some silk suture, uh, but horsehair was a popular uh, suture to use to tie things off. And that's what they would also use to sew up the wound. So you tie off the, the vessels. Um, you would smooth out the end of the bone uh, just because just it heals better. And then depending on what technique uh, you use, uh, you would, sew the flaps of skin over together and about this time you would the soldier would be starting to wake up what would they do for pain well they use either uh, morphine or opium uh, would be uh, given uh, for post-operative pain and how come was did everybody get that um i don't uh don't know the percentage. It, it was fairly common. It, it was, yeah, yeah it was. It, it, I think it'd be under unusual circumstances that they wouldn't have uh, opium or morphine. Even with the blockade of the South, uh, the South was able to get really enough ether and chloroform uh, so that they didn't uh, suffer from from lack of that. And they were they still managed to get their hands on uh, morphine or opium or, or laudanum, which I think was a combination of morphine and and alcohol. Did they use chloroform or ether more commonly? Well, the, they probably, they used, well, it depended on what they had. So again, uh, in the South, depending on what could get through the blockade, uh, they preferred chloroform. Uh, ether is flammable. Um, and in fact, so you're in a room and, you know, you don't have electric lights, right? You have yeah. candles. And so there was always a danger of, of, of a fire or an explosion with ether. Um, I think they were used probably equally, probably the same amount for both. And how long would that whole procedure last? That would take about 10 minutes. So sur- from start to end, surgeons got really uh, efficient and good. Now, again, it may depend on where the amputation would be performed. So for example, just a simple arm amputation of the forearm or, or the leg uh, would be a 10 minute operation. Uh, if, uh, if you were John Bell Hood and had your whole right leg amputated, that would be done at the hip. That was a little bit uh, trickier. And in fact, uh, the mortality after uh, amputations at the hip were extremely high. Um, I mean, almost 100%. So it was really miraculous that he survived his operation. Why is it that much more difficult? Uh, it's just uh, there's more tissue damage. There are larger vessels. Uh, so the vessels around the hip are, are huge, and uh, they're going to bleed a lot. And it's just a, it's just a more complicated area just in terms of anatomy mm. uh, with, with the hip, with the um, with the femoral head or the hip bone and, and the pelvis and, and whatnot. So it's amazing that he survived that. Yes, indeed. Yes. What about other myths? I mean, I know the big one that gets passed around is biting the bullet. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So that's that really grew out of Hollywood. Uh, but I think the genesis of that was that uh, uh, when soldiers were being put to sleep with chloroform or ether, the body has an involuntary, the, the muscles contract involuntarily. Uh, it's just the way it's just the way the body reacts to that, and so uh, as they were going to sleep uh, or going under anesthesia, uh, they would have to be held down. And and now remember, so again at Carton, uh, where they're doing these operations, there would be soldiers in that same room waiting to have their amputation done, or maybe they're recovering from one that had just been done, and they'd look over here and they'd see this soldier jumping around and jerking around and being held down. And then when they wrote letters 
to their wives or mothers or families at home, they'd say, look, uh, I saw, you know, they're doing these operations and men are, are wide awake because they're having to hold them down. And so, again, that's where that myth came out. Because to the untrained eye, it would look like yes. could look like somebody's awake. Exactly. Yeah. They, exactly. Yeah. Because they can't they can't see. They can just see the jerking around, uh, and so they're assuming that they're awake. Um, Hollywood also created the myth of bite biting the bullet. So biting the bullet was supposed to be a way of dealing with the pain. So you're going to have this amputation, and you don't have any anesthesia. You've got to stay wide awake. So they'd say, "Well, all right, bite this bullet, and that'll help take your mind off the pain or whatever." <laughs> Um, that's a, that's a total myth. Uh, in fact, their bullets, if you go to civil war shows, uh, or on eBay or whatnot, uh, people sell bullets that say, well, here are teeth marks from these bullets came out of field hospitals. This is where soldiers had to bite the bullet. Well, it's my understanding that those are actually drop bullets that wild hogs would <laughs> chew on. So those didn't come out of hospitals. So, so that's a myth that grew out of, uh, grew out of Hollywood. Uh, and again, going back to the idea that there was no anesthesia. Survival rate for surgeries that we're talking about. What was from a, from a, from a field hospital like the one we're in right now, what was the survival rate for these guys? Um, again, it's going to depend on, uh, if it's an amputation uh, on the mag- on which limb is being amputated, a, a leg amputation, an arm amputation, um, survival would be close to eighty percent. That's amazing. It is it con- con- considering that the infections were prevalent, um, and so it really took a lot of post-operative care, uh, changing dressings, uh, trying to clean those wounds uh, uh, to prevent those infections from from uh, getting into the blood system and causing sepsis and, and death. Um, again, as I've already mentioned, if it were a thigh amputation, um, probably uh, 10% survival rate at best. Um, of course, there were head injuries. Uh, there were chest injuries, abdominal injuries. The abdominal injuries did very, very bad, poorly because uh, once the gastrointestinal tract is is breached or, or punctured or broken, uh, bacteria from inside the gastrointestinal tract gets into the abdomen and that creates uh, peritonitis. And so those are pretty much uniformly fatal injuries. Um, the chest injuries, it would depend. Uh, if, the, if the lung collapsed, if they could get the lung inflated again, uh, soldiers would do pretty well. Uh, again, you know, if they survive the infection afterwards. And then, uh, then finally, head injuries uh, were interesting. So when you, uh, when you have an injury to your head, uh, to your brain, uh, there's bleeding, right? Uh, there's swelling just like any, any other part of the body. But the problem is that the brain is inside uh, a piece of bone called the cranium, and it doesn't have anywhere, that, that swelling doesn't have anywhere to go except for one spot, which is uh, down through the spinal cord where the spinal cord leaves the head and goes into the neck. Now, unfortunately, when that happens, it, it when it pushes that part of the brain down, that's the part of the brain that controls our breathing, our heart rate. And so uh, when that happens, that's called herniation. Uh, that pretty much is fatal. So to deal with that, uh, they would actually, in fact, this was something that went back to the old Roman uh, ages. Uh, they would drill holes into that bone to relieve that pressure. 
And uh, those those operations had a, had good success. So again, don't recall a percentage. Those had good success. What about any um, specific stories? Like in your research, is there anything that you have researched that you're like, that's a story that I that I won't forget? They're all pretty memorable, actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I think I mean I think the hood amputation is something that that, that has always amazed me. It's my, I don't recall whether that was done in a field hospital in a house or under a tent or whatnot, but I just think uh, that that was a pretty remarkable uh, story. I think he was taking it back to a house, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, I, I think, think it was. I, yeah. I, I believe so, too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I've got, I've got another uh, could be interesting question. Let's say we took you right now with the knowledge that you have and put you into this house on November 30th, 1864. You time traveled. You have all your knowledge, but you have, you only have the resources at the disposal back then. Is there anything that you think had they only known this, like if you were there, you would have done this thing differently? Yes, I think. And again, I think, um, operation operating under antiseptic techniques would, would be, would be key. Um, now, uh, so, so, you know, they had alcohol back then, obviously, uh, so, uh, putting either putting in, after you use instruments, putting them in alcohol, um, boil, put them in boiling water or whatnot to kill the bacteria. Uh, uh, you know, surgeons, they would do these operations. Uh, they would do one soldier, then they would just wash their instruments off in water and then just go to the next one. So again, uh, I think using antiseptic techniques, um, would really have made, uh, a big difference. They probably didn't have rubber gloves back then, but at least uh, as a surgeon, you might have washed your hands between uh, b- between operations, uh, and so that that would have uh, would have been very helpful. Well, did you have any other questions, Sarah? No, I think you. We kind of covered everything I thought beforehand. Anything else that you'd like to add before we finish up? Uh, no, I, I just well, I'll just say that um, again, a lot of advances were made during the Civil War, um, and actually, the the practice of bloodletting was starting to lose favor about that time. So it wasn't done as much uh, in the mid 1800s as it was in the early 1800s. Uh, but again, uh, you know, wars are, are are not good things; they're terrible things. But some good can come from uh, from wars, and, and again, uh, there are things that were learned during the Civil War that were carried over to World War One, and again, as we've already talked about, that are still in practice today. So, um, I, I think uh, I think we just do the best we can with the situation and go from there. Thank you again to Dr. Atkinson for coming on the podcast and telling us all that new information. And if you would like to support this show, please pick up one of our 10 and 20 t-shirts. Thank you to those who already have, but we recently got in a new shipment. Uh, We have all the sizes. So if you head to store.boft.org, you can pick up one for yourself. Also, if you'd like to reach out to us, send us an email at podcast at boft.org. And we just had a great reach out a couple of days ago. Uh, this eight-year-old girl, shout out, her name was Esther. Her and her dad came in, took a tour of Compton, and it was really fun being able to talk to someone who listens to our podcast every day. We'll be back in two weeks. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>